Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. So internal investigations often are conducted by company personnel who may not have investigative backgrounds. And while that's a common scenario and perfectly appropriate, there are certain do's and don'ts that non-investigators should know about to avoid missteps that could undermine the investigation and limit its effectiveness. So joining me today to discuss investigations for non-investigators is Michael Menon Robinson partner, Brad Henry. Brad represents entities and individuals in criminal and regulatory litigation and government investigations, international arbitrations, and internal investigations involving securities fraud, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and export violations, bank secrecy and money laundering offenses, public corruption, U.S. economic sanctions violations, corporate financial fraud, and theft of trade secrets. So welcome, Brad, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. I'm really glad to be here. So perhaps the most perilous situation is when a company finds itself in need of an internal investigation for the very first time. There's likely no investigative policy, no procedures, and no clear understanding as to who should lead the investigation and what other company resources may need to be utilized. So what are the five most important things that a company in this situation should do to avoid missteps that could undermine the investigation and potentially amplify their liability? Well, let me start by saying that, you know, under the right circumstances, conducting an internal investigation protected by the attorney-client privilege provides a ton of benefits for companies. And it does that in a number of ways, right? Revealing relevant facts that will help management or the board make decisions related to the company, stopping conduct that they don't want going on at the company, insulating management or the board against further allegations or allegations of misconduct, and and really just as an overall matter, promoting a culture of transparency and compliance from top to bottom of the organization. But when you're faced with a situation where it makes sense to do an internal investigation and you want to take some steps at the beginning to set yourself up for success, the five things that I can think of for you to be able to do that are number one, make a determination about whether you're engaging outside counsel or not. And that really serves a lot of purposes, but one of those purposes is it preserves your privilege. And in these types of investigations, depending on what's happening and what you're looking into, privilege can be extremely important, both the attorney-client privilege and the work product privilege. The second thing is, is you want to make sure that you keep up with privacy issues. You want to ensure that the privacy of those individuals involved in the investigation, the person that reported the potential problem, if it, if it came from an internal report or a whistleblower and the ongoings of the company, you want to ensure from the outset that those are maintained in the best way possible. And maybe the most important thing you can do at the beginning of an investigation is notify and begin to preserve and identify data putting out notices to employees or other stakeholders to keep and maintain documents and records to prevent internal systems from deleting, doing auto-deletions, making sure those are turned off, preserving the information, and then going about putting together a plan to collect that information so that it can be reviewed and you can make use of it. And then the other two are figuring out 
what the chain of command is going to be, you know, and the chain of command can be different if you're doing the investigation in-house and you're not engaging outside counsel, which in some instances is something that can be done, but not advisable in most instances. In fact, the trend is very much towards engaging outside counsel for a lot of reasons, many of them business reasons and not legal reasons at all. Uh, But you want to come up with who is controlling the investigation, who is conducting the investigation, who will be receiving the reports about the investigation. All of those things are important for a lot of reasons. And then the third thing is, is figure out a plan for witness interviews and where you're going to conduct those. There are questions of sequencing. There are questions of, do you interview certain witnesses before others for a strategic or a fact-finding purpose? And so coming up with those, those five things, which are privilege, privacy, data preservation collection, chain of command, and witness interview plan are the five things that I would say are the most important sort of right out of the gate when you're doing an investigation. Those are great points you make. Thank you, Brad. Internal investigations and the meeting out of institutional justice, it needs to be applied consistently, which you know often necessitates some written guidance and protocols. So in light of that, should every organization have an investigative policy and procedures in place, even if they haven't experienced an internal investigation before? I think the answer to me is, is maybe a, a little bit of a yes and a no. First of all, I think it's impractical to think that every company will have a policy and procedure, particularly if they have never conducted or undergone an internal investigation. And it really just sort of depends on the size of the company, the sophistication of the company, the resources that they have. But to the extent that the company is of sufficient size, is a company that's subject to a regulatory regime, companies that do cross-border work, companies that engage in business that involve governments, or other sort of high-risk business entities, or sort of international companies, then I think it makes a lot of sense for them to have a policy in relation to internal investigations. And they should think seriously about doing that if they haven't done that already. The recent pronouncement by this administration that anti-corruption, AML policy, cybersecurity, and other areas that are heavily regulated and, and where these types of internal investigations happen very often have been deemed matters of national security. And enforcement officials have made very clear, particularly as of late, that they are going to be regulating and enforcing those things um, probably more than we've seen, at least in the recent past. And so a company... I think would make a wise decision if they were to adopt an internal investigation policy focusing on, you know, the protocols of conducting internal investigation. And that's especially true where there's a prospect of a government agency investigation or other outstanding legal action. And those policies in a real way can set you up for success because they can be designed to ensure that internal investigations, regardless of their scope, or size or content are things that we all want them to be, which are done quickly, they're done effectively, they are well managed, the capital output for doing those is responsibly managed, and that the ultimate outcome is addressed in a straightforward, a credible way. Those policies can include things like how do you initiate an investigation? How do you plan an investigation? How do you keep privilege? Are there going to be any external reports? You know, what is the corrective action, ensuring that there's an anti-retaliation policy? And all of those things are very important. And in the long run, if you have those policies in place, that's just one more feather in your cap. If a regulator or enforcer happens to catch wind of what's going on and are interested in it and they come knocking on your door, you can say, you know, we had these policies in place. We followed our policies and here was the outcome, which inures to 
your company's benefit in almost every instance. You make some great points there. I would add a couple of things. I mean, I think one of the nice things about an investigative policy and procedures you know, particularly for companies that maybe don't have um, a large volume of these things, is it orders your thinking. It forces you to kind of realistically appraise what your capabilities and limitations are. And then if you are mindful of those limitations, you know, do you backfill with service providers that could provide that service if and when you need it? And then I also think that the other thing that is really very important to emphasize is it it accelerates your ability to respond in a timely way because you're not spending a lot of time looking at one another across the you know conference room and and wondering what should we do first and who should do it and and what are the communication protocols that we should follow and half a dozen other things the various things that they may need to do when it's a, a much more urgent situation you know one of the hallmarks of an effective compliance program as promulgated by the DOJ and the SEC is confidential reporting and internal investigation and that seems to suggest that in order for the government to conclude that you have an effective compliance program, you should have a formalized mechanism for confidential reporting and performing internal investigations. So in light of that, and given you know some of the things you said earlier about company of a certain size and certain regulatory regimes that might be in place, what are some of the critical success factors for confidential reporting and internal investigations that would enable a company to demonstrate that this particular hallmark is contributing in a positive way to the overall efficacy of the compliance program. When I think about these issues, and if I guess if I were given a blank slate in a company and say, well, what do we do to make sure that we're complying and we're, we're conducting investigations appropriately and doing the things that we're supposed to do, both to protect ourselves, but also to protect our employees, to protect our investors and consumers, is you'd want to set up a few things, right? And you mentioned confidential reporting channels. And I think that sort of covers two areas or bleeds into two areas, which are on the front end, a compliance function and on the back end, an investigative function, right? Compliance meaning you want to be able to control the things that are happening at your company and sort of set the objectives. And then on the other side, you know, if someone happens to run afoul of those, what is to be done about that? But well-designed anonymous reporting channels are a hallmark of almost any compliance program. And and if you're running an investigation, they're an important part of making sure that your investigations are happening, that you're aware of conduct that's going on in your business. And so Having numerous ways that an employee can can reach out and say, hey, I've got this issue and I need you to address it is super important. And those aren't really super difficult things to do, right? You can, you can enact policies and procedures, regardless of the size of your company, that sort of address these issues and provide an email address or a, a phone number that goes to an individual where you, your employees can feel free to call them up and not have to provide personal information, but can provide information and context about things that are happening that are troubling to them that should be looked into. And that should be reinforced through training programs that talk about these sorts of communication lines communicated to your employees that even if you make these reports and we know it's you, that there is no retaliation. A culture of compliance is the the buzzword that you always hear. But really what that means is your CEO the president of your company, the chief financial officer, the mid-level management all the way down understands that at our office, at our company, in our business, we are going to conduct ourselves according to the law and the regulations that we are subject to and making that clear from everyone. 
And then the other thing I'll say in terms of, you know, making sure that your confidential reports are being handled appropriately is for companies of sufficient size and a sufficient makeup, you might want to think about having an investigative committee, but it's sort of already preloaded. Companies that don't deal with investigations often, we're left to counsel them through the process of setting up an investigations committee that's independent, that, you know, can control and make decisions about the investigation scope. And so I think in protecting those confidential reports, those things are important to think about. You know, it should be baked into your company's compliance culture from the outset, which just makes the investigative process on the back end run much more smoothly. In your response just now, you you touched upon anti-retaliation. You know, this is always an area of concern. And I also think that sometimes there exists, there's somewhat wrongheaded instinct out there, and maybe it's well-meaning but it's certainly not a good instinct, which is, you know, when there's this inclination to try to identify anonymous or confidential whistleblowers, even if it's not with malice, right? If it's just, it would be nice to know who this person is, it will give us the ability to, you know, assess their credibility. It really is a no good can come from this kind of path in the overwhelming majority of instances. So in in light of that, and in light of sensitivities around retaliation and how things can really go sideways quickly if that is what you as a company begin to get known as associated with your internal investigation, how can companies kind of strike up a dialogue with a confidential reporter or whistleblower while still staying away from anything that could appear to be an effort at unmasking the, the identity of the whistleblower? I mean, I think there are a couple of steps and you're right. You said it. Curiosity killed the cat in some instances. And I mean, going to the sort of the theme of the podcast, right? Investigations for non-investigators, right? A person who is not in investigations in your everyday life, your natural inclination is going to be, well, who said that? And where did they come from? And, and we want to make judgments about who they are and what function they serve in the company and what position they hold and who are they interacting with to make determinations about you know the validity of their concern. But in a lot of cases, that's exactly the, not the right thing to do in investigations to go and look at the documents, to talk to the people, to figure out what actually happened instead of making prejudgments about it based on who the person is. A couple of suggestions are if you are going to or you have found out who the confidential reporter is, obviously you want to protect their confidentiality. If you've learned as an investigator or as a a member of a company, the last thing that you ever want to do is to make it known more widely who that person is, right? I mean, there is nothing that more fundamentally breaks down the trust and compliance culture at a company than just those kinds of things coming out. Not only that person, but others will lose complete faith in the systems that were designed to protect the company and and they won't use them. So if you're going to talk to the person you know, make sure that the communication is about them and what they're thinking and what they saw. Center around that person. Don't be accusatory. Hear them out. Providing them updates on the progress of an investigation may be something that you decide is an appropriate action to take. Make sure that they understand the steps that they need to take. Next, make sure that they're interacting or interactions with the investigators or others as tightly coordinated so that you can control that anonymity and make sure that they feel safe in in doing what they have done. 
you may want to come up with standardized messaging for communication, right? You could have a policy and procedure about how do you address reporters. And uh, if you're going to talk to them, here are the steps that you need to take. And then if there is, you know, retaliation, as it were, you see that there has been some, you know, assumption or information that's gotten out that that person was the anonymous reporter and, and something's happening against them, you know, work swiftly as a company to shut that down and make sure that retaliation simply never happens. I think if you can do some of those things, that will just reinforce the core message of your company's ideals and compliance protocols and make people feel more comfortable reporting incidents that happen, which overall makes the company run more smoothly and is more beneficial to the folks that work there and the folks that are provided products or services from that company. So one of the things that you just mentioned, I think is really worth reemphasizing, which is this. Let's say somebody uses a hotline and they submit allegations through that confidential reporting mechanism, acknowledging that you got it and that you are taking it seriously and that you're going to take a hard look at what's been said and then trying to at least lay the groundwork for what could be a dialogue, right? Because most of the hotline products that are out there, there is some mechanism to leave messages for the person and for that person to relay messages without disclosing who they are. The other thing is just understanding the sort of the psychology of what's going on for this person, because to them, this is a very important thing and a decision they agonized over doing. And it and they're kind of sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to see what happens. And it may not be transparent to them that anything okay. is happening. So okay. it'll go a long way toward them not escalating things on their end. If you just tell them, yeah, we hear you and we're, we're taking it seriously. And, you know, we're not in a position to tell you everything while it's going on, but just understand that there will be things going on and you might see some visible signs of it. But in any case, we're going to check in with you and update you, make that person feel like what they're saying is valued. So police procedurals on television and in movies, good, bad, or indifferent, inform most people's frame of reference on internal investigation. In reality, you know, there's no smart boards that are connected to all the information in the world. It would be cool if that was the case, but not everyone's biometrics are readily available for you to figure out who they are. And then lastly, you know, the interviewing the suspect employee is the first step of investigation is rarely a good idea because you actually just, you don't really know anything at the early stages of the investigation. And what, what are you hoping to accomplish with that witness interview if you don't have really at least some facts available to you? So what are the minimum steps that should be taken to gather the facts and prepare to perform, let's say, an admission-seeking interview if that's the direction the investigation is heading? So you're right that it is often not a good idea to go straight to the source in almost every instance. I can't think of anywhere it would be the right idea. But there are lots of things that you can do to prepare to get there. And in the way I like to view it, in a lot of ways, I'm a very linear thinker. And so to me, it's a, it's, you know, it's a process of collecting information, corroborating information, and then conducting sort of the ultimate interview. If you've identified a personal persons who you view as the root cause of the problem, collecting evidence. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. You know, thinking about it as in a series of events, like if you go in, you start reviewing emails, you start reviewing documents, you get a baseline for what was happening. You observe what's going on at the company and you can gather a lot of information too from like third parties, right? 
neutral folks. And those are easy to talk to. They give you information. They create the foundations for your views and thoughts on how you're going to approach the next steps of uh, the investigation, building the base. You move into the corroboration. And that's through that process of interviews of non-stakeholders and reviewing documents and other information. There are people that you want to talk to, to confirm what you are thinking what you've read, what you've heard. And so you go to those witnesses, you talk to them, uh, you conduct the interviews and you gather information there. That can be people within the department. It can be people in management at the company. It can be any number of people that you've identified. And then you can go from that point when you feel comfortable that you have a very good grasp of what's occurred, that you feel confident in saying that there was an individual or individuals who are responsible for the wrongdoing the actions that you have been tasked to look into and work your way to them. And so as a last step, often in investigation, it is the best idea to save those admission-seeking interviews until you get to a point where you can sit the person down, ask them questions, be confident in knowing that you have a uh, super good grasp of what happened. In, in those instances, if they try to be deceptive or they try to wiggle out of things or to mislead you, you have not only the interview information that you have, but you have the documentary evidence that you can you can begin to put in front of them if, if you're attempting to get an admission from them, you know, sort of leading them down that path, bordering on impossible to do that if you have not done the prep work ahead of time. So internal investigations are triggered by different types of allegations that may suggest the need for different expertise. But regardless, there comes an inflection point in many internal investigations when it might make sense to transition it to outside counsel, investigators, forensic accountants. What are some of the considerations as to when to involve outside parties? In some instances, it's a judgment call, but in other instances, there are certain things that occur that sort of really drive toward that decision of, you know, bringing in outside counsel. And it would be helpful, I think, to kind of, you know, talk about what some of those instances are. I think you nailed it. There are different factors and indicators that would make, you know, a company choose one over the other. And they fall into different buckets, right? It could be purely a business decision. I have a group of people who may be able to conduct this investigation, but it would be super disruptive. They've got other things going on as minimally invasive as possible to our ongoing business operations. And therefore, I'm going to bring someone in to do that. And so you make a purely business decision. The other bucket, which is the judgment calls about credibility. You know, how credible do you want the investigation to be perceived? Lining it up based on that. But that bleeds into these more broad decisions about when is an investigator from the outside, potentially outside vendors, forensic experts, really comes down to what is the complaint about and how you know serious is it? You know, when there's issues of strict liability, you want to be able to get someone in there to look at it from an outside opinion. When there are senior executives, board members, um, high-level management, folks who are making decisions 
at the company who may be involved in the misconduct. In those instances, there is no question that you want outside folks to come in. And then obviously the the easiest one of all is if you've gotten wind that law enforcement or a regulator has has been involved, you receive a subpoena or a target letter, or you know, you have some indication, some clear indication that it is going to be an investigation parallel to some other government action. While it is certainly true that there are some investigations that companies can do internally, I would say on the flip side that there are those investigations that a company certainly cannot do on their own. And it would behoove any general counsel or audit committee member or whoever it is that's thinking about how they approach the problem to be thinking about the outside counsel question early. If it's a close call, and you're asking me, I think the fail-safe is to get outside counsel, right? And that way you don't have those risks that you might not see coming. You know, you were just mentioning privilege. Most people associate the attorney-client privilege and the attorney work product doctrine, if they're even familiar with it, with litigation matters. And the fact of the matter is most investigations are, in fact, performed pursuant to the attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine. Can you explain why that is and the importance of performing investigations pursuant to the attorney-client privilege? Yeah, for sure. And and this is, I mean, to me, and I think most people who do this for a living, this is one of the most important questions. It's a fairly heavily litigated area of the law. When you look at the Volkswagen case, there are a ton of cases, particularly in cross-border investigations, right, where the attorney-client privilege issue comes up rather frequently. And that can have disastrous consequences for the company if they are not handled appropriately. The other thing the attorney-client privilege does, really, it's it's vital. I mean, it's just necessary to be able to uncover facts and to effectively render legal advice because at the end of the day, it minimizes risks that people or parties involved in the investigation will be you know, forced at some point in time to provide information, criminal liability, civil liability. And there are lots of ways that you can step outside privilege, right? If, you, if you're not careful and you're not dealing with someone who, who has thought through those issues and is familiar with um, prior case law, it could be a, a serious pitfall. But the attorney-client privilege, if, if you've set up the relationship in such a way that they are the client, you're the attorney, and you are, you are giving them advice, that attaches really no questions asked. The privilege protects the investigation, allows the investigator to do the job, allows the company to feel free to provide open and honest answers and to get to the bottom of things without the risk of having to turn over all of that information when it's you know, inappropriate or disadvantageous to the company. You talked earlier about the, the timing of witness interviews and the fact that you and I are both linear thinkers, apparently. But there are other important considerations. So can you walk us through what factors should go into how to approach investigative interviews of employees? Sure. There's a lot of them. This sort of gets into the art of investigations, if you want to call it that, which is when you're making decisions about how to approach an investigation and what the objective is and what the scope of the investigation is, right? These judgment calls are the ones that are important, both in maintaining the credibility and independence of the investigation, but also getting to the facts and getting to the uncovering the information that will give you the answers to what it is that you're looking for. And so there's a lot of considerations like who's going to lead the interview, who will attend the interview, 
you know, are you going to give notice to the person that you are interviewing ahead of time? Or are you just going to walk and grab them and say, hey, can I have a word with you? And then once you've gotten all those decisions made, you got to know the person that you're interviewing. Do they speak your language? Are you going to need some uh, assistance in translation? Are you going to be giving them information during the interview? Are you going to be showing them documents? Or is it just going to be, you know, a simple verbal back and forth, ask questions and see what they have to say? You know, we talked about sequencing a little bit earlier when you talk about getting to an interview where you're trying to get an admission, thinking thinking through who those people are you want to talk to and the information you want to gather from them is is a critical judgment call that you have to make. You know, one of the other things is that you got to determine for each individual that you're interviewing whether you got to give up John warnings or other advice um, related to privilege and the way that their information that they give you can be used later on by the company and who owns the privilege and you know, from past experience, government agencies, when or if they do get involved, are cognizant of some of those things. And there have been instances in the past, right, where investigators have gone in at the SEC or DOJ, goes back and looks at the way that they conducted the investigation once that information is turned over to them. And in some instances, they've made, a, you know, a call that uh, the person's not going to get full cooperation credit because of the way that the information was gathered from witnesses. You know, in those instances, those those calls that outside counsel made and the way that they conducted the interview were later viewed by those agencies to the detriment ultimately of the company, right, who had to face, either, you know, a higher penalty, a longer monitorship or whatever the case may be because the government decided that the way that the interviews were conducted were not were not independent or as credible as they thought they should have been. So those are all some great points. I'd like to add a couple. I mean, one, an internal investigation so the company into chaos, or it certainly has the potential to do that. Anxiety across the company is, is through the roof. Uh, the rumor mill is going wild, at least in the situations where the fact of the investigation is known. But one thing that, you know, in light of that and potentially the negative consequences on organizational culture is, you know, maybe having these interviews offsite, having them at the, at the law firm's office or, or you know, a hotel banquet facility that you rented or meeting room that you rented for the day so that you're not marching somebody across the plant floor through the mm-hmm. bullpen and coming into the conference room that's all yep. glass and meeting with a bunch of people in suits and a court reporter. It's just puts those people in, you know, a very visible and untenable position. And, you know, and if it turns out this is much ado about nothing, you know, we go back to our our lives and they're maybe much having much longer term consequences for having talked to us. So right. those are, I think, important things that too, too, is just, you know, how do you stage the interview in a way that it's not the maximum disruption for the individual or the company? You know, sort of the culmination of an investigation is often, you know, some kind of written report. What are some important considerations in terms of how to document the investigation and, and, and you know, what to put in the report, how to style it, et cetera? That's actually a really important consideration, right? As it goes back to, you know, questions of privilege and, and what information may you know, be disclosed after an investigation is concluded. Obviously, you or I as an outside investigator, our job at the end of the day, right, is conduct the investigation, but more importantly, to communicate what we found out based on what we've seen to the company or the stakeholders who instructed the investigation. And so obviously, you would think they would want some kind of report at the conclusion of the investigation. And that report 
would include sort of the culmination of what was found. And in some instances, that might be the first time that a company or a client has been told about what happened. You know, sometimes there are periodic updates, but in some instances there are not. It sort of just depends on the engagement. On the flip side of that, it might be the only opportunity for us as counsel to tell the client about what our what our legal conclusions are, right? We've found out the facts, we've applied those to the law, and here's what we think the outcome is or what the things that you need to do in terms of decision-making are. And so the decision about whether to produce a written report or alternatively do an oral report is not always an easy one. And as you might imagine, there are a lot of advantages to a written report, communicating information um, that has staying power, often is done in writing, um, but there can also be a lot of disadvantages. And so the risk and benefit to both has to be weighed pretty carefully. So, so starting just with a, a written report, you can provide a ton of facts. Um, you can go through in great detail. You can draw legal conclusions. You can put it all right there in front of the client for them to read at their leisure. You can talk about what the remedial action is you need to take, if there's any discipline that needs to happen in terms of employees, and it can all be given over in a nice, neat package. And often those reports end up in the hands of investigators. I will say that that's more or less a decision that companies make, right? And in some cases, there's no other practical choice than to say, uh, look, I'm going to produce this report to whoever the agency is, the SEC, the DOJ, for any number of reasons, not the least of which is there was wrongdoing found. There have been actions and recommendations on how to address that. And if we turn it over to those government agencies, they have a policy uh, regarding internal investigations and credit that a company can get if they do those things. In many instances, that credit can be very substantial. And so a company makes the decision to turn those things over. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of compelling arguments against producing a written report, right? And the decision to do that is one that you, I think, have to consider really carefully. A written report versus an oral report in writing findings that are, you know, embarrassing or damaging the company when they're right there on paper, you know, sometimes are are hard to deal with. But even if the company intends to keep the report's findings confidential in those instances or where there's, you know, not a benefit to doing a self-disclosure for whatever reason, you know, maintaining confidentiality of a of a written report can be much more difficult preserving the confidentiality of an oral report. And in that way, you know, you avoid things like it getting into the hands of uh, a government agency or, you know, potential civil litigants, you know, looking at a similar issue and are just itching to sue your company for whatever reason. And so there is no requirement in terms of internal investigations. You don't have to produce a report. And so, you know, there's also the option of taking a half measure, right, which is you draft a limited report, a curtailed report that you provide and give additional oral findings. It could be a PowerPoint and an oral presentation. So in that way, you can give yourself some flexibility and provide some additional protection if it is your choice to keep the investigation confidential. But the problem with that is if there is a regulator that comes knocking on the door and there is no written report, you would imagine that those government agencies or whoever is looking for that information could make allegations of concealing or hiding information, um, which is definitely not the right way to start off a conversation with the government. 
So once an internal investigation has been completed, and in some instances, if it's a pretty you know significant matter and there have been disciplinary measures meted out or you know even public pronouncements of the outcome for companies that are publicly traded and there's a maybe a financial statement implications. Uh, what are some of the good internal communication steps for organizations that are now you know, trying to put this chapter behind them to sort of uh, lower the anxiety level, reinforce the organization's ethical culture, taking it as an opportunity to sort of just remind people of the, you know, what the company stands for in terms of ethics. There, there are a number of things companies can do, but I, I, it really just boils down to, in a lot of ways, open communication, right? And making sure that your employees and those people who engage with your company know that you engaged in a process, that that process resulted in a conclusion, and that actions have been taken as a result of that process. And they are scattered throughout what we've talked about today, right? You know, the importance of maintaining and keeping the confidence of confidential reporter, you know, having those policies and procedures in place. But, you know, it's an opportunity for a company to reinforce those. You know, perhaps they got to the investigation and, and one of the recommendations was, in fact, to create a new policy and procedure. And if the company follows through, puts that together, puts it on the books and notifies employees of it, notifying employees of the outcome of the investigation, keeping that line of trust between the company and those people who are the company and that work at the company open, I, I think is incredibly important. It does exactly what you said, right? Which is reinforce that culture in the company of ethics, of morals, of compliance, really of just doing the right thing. And part of doing the right thing is owning up and letting people know what actions have been taken to correct the wrongs that have happened. Well, thank you, Brad. And this has been great. I mean, this is a great conversation. I, I really think, you know, particularly companies who maybe don't have a wealth of experience in managing internal investigations, I think they've got a lot of takeaways from, from this episode and really, really appreciate you taking part in, in, this, uh, in this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I was glad to be here today. I appreciate it very much. Uh, and it was, it was good to talk to you. Likewise. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Scott. So that was Brad Henry from Michaelman and Robinson. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic or guest that you'd like to hear about or from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 